Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those joining us online, as well as from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, and Airdrie. Now, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in a sermon series called Press On. And today I'm going to bring this series to a close, and next weekend we will be moving to another section in the Gospel of Matthew, and that'll have an Easter theme to it, so it'll prepare us for our Easter series. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly extended invitations to people. And his favorite phrase to invite someone into discipleship are these two words, follow me. And when we say yes to Jesus' invitation, we enter into a lifelong relationship of walking with Jesus. A discipleship is not a short sprint, it is a marathon. It is a wholehearted commitment that is going to demand everything of you. Now, in life, we constantly search for quicker and more effective ways of getting things done. But when it comes to discipleship, there are no shortcuts. In fact, taking shortcuts can cause longer delays. You know, here in Calgary, I know of at least a couple of places where you can come across a bus trap. It should actually be called a car trap because it's designed in such a way that a bus can pass through this obstacle effortlessly, but the wheelbase of a car is not big enough. So if you attempt to drive your car through this pit, you will be stuck. And that's why they have these large signs warning you very clearly, danger, do not enter, vehicle trap embedded in roadway. And clearly some people don't read signs. And they think they are somehow smart enough to maneuver their car past this bus trap where all they can see is a shortcut that will save them lots of time. Bad idea. Nevertheless, we see many people have not given up and keep attempting the impossible. Now, there is a significant lesson here for our spiritual lives. The things that promise you quick success, instant results with minimum efforts are traps. You cannot maneuver to the other side. You know, the problem with shortcuts is they are tantalizing, they are attractive. When you see ads on social media, earn six-figure income, working from home, doing nothing. It may seem really attractive and amazing, but it is only a scam, and still thousands of people will succumb to it. Lose weight by drinking this magic potion, and you will see miraculous results in just seven days. Or what about those age-old emails about a rich businessman in some far country who has died and left you an inheritance and all you need is just send your bank information. Uh, these are shortcuts that do not work. And people find this out the hard way. Now, I'll be upfront here today. There are no fast tracks in discipleship. There are no shortcuts to heaven. Now, I wish I can say to you today, here are the top three secrets for the Christian life. If you follow these principles, then you will be the greatest Christian ever. The truth is there is no such thing. The Christian life is a lifelong battle in which you will have to choose Jesus daily. Now, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, 
that spells out discipleship as it is. And towards the end of this message, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we believe the Lord's Supper is a significant ordinance for Christians and a highlight of our corporate worship experience. So we will be engaging in this experience meaningfully. I just want to make sure that you have received as you are coming in your elements, and this will be, we will be partaking of it towards the end of this message. I'm going to ask you now to stand as we read from God's Word. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some, of, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we just sang that Christ be magnified. And that is my prayer this morning. Even through the preaching of your word, let Christ be magnified in our midst, in our hearts. That you will give us a heart that is humble and open and receptive to what you have to say, even though this is a hard message. We pray, God, that our hearts will be soft and be humble to receive from you. So minister to us today through your spirit. We ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The last few years have been particularly disastrous for celebrity Christian preachers. So many high-profile, highly esteemed evangelical Christian leaders have fallen into some form of sin that has disqualified them from ministry. And this has been a highly disturbing trend that is almost causing an integrity crisis in the church. Now, when I hear the news of yet another well-known, eminent Christian leader falling into a pattern of sinful lifestyle, and losing their credibility, I feel a deep sense of pain. It is a time for all of us to grieve. But the latest one that has come out has hit me hard, perhaps more than any other, because I personally had a very high regard and respect for this individual and followed his ministry over the years, read most of his books, 
all of his talks, listened to it on the internet, met him personally. I'm talking about the late Ravi Zacharias. A number of people have been asking me how I'm processing the recent revelation about Ravi and what's come out in the media. And if you don't know this, news reports in the media have confirmed that the late Ravi Zacharias lived a duplicitous life. That the one hailed as the greatest apologist of our time engaged in numerous acts of sexual misconduct and took advantage of dozens of women and manipulated them over many years. An independent law firm that did the investigation have found all of these allegations to be true. And like you, I'm also wondering, how can someone speak with such passion and conviction and be a spokesperson for our faith before the intellectual community, like universities, business places, political spheres, before government leaders, from United Nations to the White House, and yet in his private life exhibit such deviant, distorted behavior? Now, how can someone have such an impeccable outward persona, present himself with such authority and charisma, and yet live by a completely different set of rules? And my heart goes out to Ravi's victims, people who have been deeply hurt and taken advantage of. And I want to connect my response to our text here and let God's word speak rather than just give my personal opinion. You know, Pastor Henry preached on this text last weekend. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter acted like the spokesperson for the rest of the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, a city full of pagan statues of gods and goddesses. Peter makes this marvelous confession Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends Peter for that. He says, Simon, you are blessed because you have received this revelation, not from flesh and blood, but from my Father in heaven. Jesus goes on to say, you are Peter, and upon your confession, upon you and people like you who believe in me and profess their faith in me, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome what I'm doing. And in the very next section that we just read today, Peter, who is commended for being the rock, now turns into a stumbling stone and says something that is inspired by Satan. You know, how can you move so quickly from being a spokesperson for God and, and just all of a sudden switch sides and become a spokesperson for the enemy? And therein lies our answer to the dilemma of our prominent Christian leaders and how they can fall away from their faith and do something so diabolic and so inconsistent with the message that they have publicly proclaimed. Now, the Bible is very clear. We are in a spiritual battle. The Bible gives us clear warning to all of us, all of us. No one is exempt. No one can say, I am not vulnerable. Here is a stern caution from God's Word that we all should pay attention to as followers of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed 
lest he fall. You may be adored by millions of people for your faith, for your ability to speak, your spiritual gifts. You may be on the top of the organizational chart, but if you are not careful, if you don't discipline yourself to seek God on a daily basis and live a spirit-filled life, it doesn't matter who you are, what titles you hold, the enemy will take you down. For it is only as long as we are in Christ, we have the authority to overcome. And Christian leaders are not invincible. We are fallible, capable of making grave mistakes. And that is why we should not turn any Christian leader into a celebrity. You know, the reason we give someone such status is because we regard them so highly. But when we find out the truth that this person is not who they said they are, then it leads to disillusionment. And that is why when we place our faith in a well-known preacher or pastor or author, you will be eventually disappointed. But if your faith is in Christ, rooted in the character of Christ as revealed in his word, then I can assure you, Jesus will never disappoint you. Now, going back to our text for today, Jesus was clearly teaching his disciples, probably for the very first time. He's giving them a clear blueprint of how things are going to pan out. A revelation was of what was about to unfold. Now look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You know, an important word that comes over and over in that verse is the word must. Jesus highlights the necessity of his death. It was not optional. You know, the Israelites on their part did not connect the word suffering with the word Messiah. The Messiah was the one who will crush Israel's enemies. He will conquer and restore Israel back to their glory days. But Jesus here was going to Jerusalem not to conquer, but to die. And the idea of a Messiah who will suffer didn't make any sense. Now that explains Peter's reaction. Look at this verse, verse 22. Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And notice this, this is not a mild suggestion from Peter. The text says he rebuked Jesus. Wow. Do you know what else is fascinating? It is the same word used in the Greek language of Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves when they were caught in a storm. It's the same word Jesus also used to command evil spirits to leave. He rebuked the evil spirits. It's a strong word. And Peter here is not giving a gentle advice. He is commanding Jesus. 
what are you saying, Jesus? Are you out of your mind? You want to go to Jerusalem and do what? You, you have to go to Jerusalem and usurp the authority from the Romans and declare yourself as the king. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. So Peter corrects Jesus for thinking of a plan that was contrary to popular opinion. For Jesus' plan would involve suffering, being jeered by the crowd, humiliated before the religious leaders, being spat upon and mocked, beaten to a pulp, and die on a cross. And Peter says, surely this will not happen to you, Lord. A literal translation of that would be, God forbid something like this will happen to you, Jesus. This cannot be God's purpose for your life. Here's Jesus' response to Peter, verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Jesus and Peter are having a talk. How did Satan come into this conversation? Here's something you need to know. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are three turning points, three pivotal moments when something big was about to unfold and at every one of those times, Satan intervenes to hinder God's will. Remember at his baptism, Jesus receives the affirmation from the Father, this is the beloved Son, and he receives the Holy Spirit, and Jesus publicly launches his ministry. And immediately, right after that account, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. The next pivotal moment is the incident here in Caesarea Philippi, where Peter confesses openly that Jesus is the Christ, a significant confession of faith that leaves no longer any doubt about the identity of Jesus. He is the long-anticipated Messiah. And right after that, Jesus is being tempted by Satan through Peter himself. And the next turning point, which would be something we'll be preaching in a few weeks' time, it's the night before Jesus' crucifixion when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, where once again Satan shows up to tempt Jesus for the one last time to keep him from the cross. Every one of those temptations had this in common. They were coercing Jesus to take the shortcut bypass God's plan for your life, and take the easy route. Strip away all those gory details, and let's just quickly move to the good part of the story. And I tell you, this was a temptation that Jesus had to wrestle throughout his life. It was a profound temptation to quit the path that God had laid out for Jesus and trade it for something else to evade the cross, to forget that episode of his life and choose an easy route. Jesus will be glorified. 
That was God's unchangeable plan. Jesus will be crowned Lord of all. But the path to glory was through the cross, through suffering, through brokenness and pain. And there was no shortcut to glory without enduring the cross. Jesus clearly knew as he was talking to Peter. This was not Peter speaking, but he's acting as an instrument of Satan to deter him from going to the cross. So Jesus responds back with strong words, fighting fire with fire. Get behind me, Satan. I want nothing to do with you. That phrase, get behind someone, is a metaphor for discipleship. And Jesus is saying to Peter, quit being led by Satan and follow me in my pathway of discipleship. Now, we today act like Peter when we elevate only the blessings of the Christian life and minimize the cost. If we dwell only on those mountaintop moments and completely ignore the valleys, we miss out on something absolutely crucial that God wants us to learn. If someone only preaches, come to Jesus and he will give you peace, joy, healing, prosperity, heaven on earth, but completely ignores the message of sacrifice and downplays the cost of discipleship, the need for repentance and the path of suffering and self-denial, then they are not preaching the full gospel. Jesus in our passage corrects Peter's mindset and our mindset as he clarifies what it really means to be his disciples. And when you sign a legal contract, it has a set of terms and conditions that are binding on you, even those things that are in fine print. And in the case of following Jesus, when you say yes to his call to become a disciple, you are entering into a contract and the terms and conditions are applicable to you. And here's the difference. God is not tricking you with some details in fine print. He is quite upfront about it. He is crystal clear. If you cannot agree to these demands, then you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. So here in our text, Jesus spells discipleship in clearest terms. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Did you see the word must shows up again? Just as Jesus must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. In the same way, Jesus' disciples must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow him. It is also a divine necessity. Now, if you put those very words that Jesus just says here in its original context, 
this was not an appealing call to discipleship. This is not, come follow me and your life will turn into a bed of roses. Jesus' words sounded morbid to the original audience. It would have sent shockwaves. For crucifixion was the most horrific form of death one can ever visualize. Reserved for the worst of the worst in the society. And Jesus is saying here, deny yourself. Pick up the cross, this despised instrument of death, like the electric chair or a lethal injection, and follow me. Now, if we are honest, these words are as radical today as they were 2,000 years ago. For we are a society that has made an idol out of ourselves. Jesus is calling us, all of us who claim to follow him, to this lifestyle of self-denial. You know, in a world that values the self and nurtures the self and pampers the self and is obsessed with ourself and all of our decisions are made in light of how it will benefit ourself, what Jesus is calling us to do is so countercultural. For what is the motto of our world? It's to maximize your comfort and pleasure and do everything to minimize your pain. It has been inculcated into our minds, live selfishly and make yourself comfortable and happy even if it comes at the expense of others. Your personal happiness trumps everything else. So that is why our natural drift and progression is towards selfishness. And what Jesus is saying here and demanding of us is mind-blowing. To deny yourself means to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness that's rampant in our culture. Hear me now. When you decide to follow Jesus, you are no longer the boss of your life. You're not the CEO. The day you choose to follow Jesus, you submit your resignation letter and forfeit your rights. For you can no longer live according to your terms and conditions, but you have to bring your life under Christ's lordship. And there will be those times in your Christian journey when you will be sorely tempted to take a shortcut, a plan of your own creation that looks glamorous and flashy, and it will serve you well. It will elevate yourself and satisfy yourself and make much of yourself. But the only problem is this plan is contrary to what Jesus wants of you. And in those moments in your Christian journey, you are confronted with a decision. Are you going to walk in obedience to Christ in this pathway of self-denial? Or are you going to choose a shortcut and compromise on your conviction? You know, when Peter says here to Jesus, this will never happen to you. It was not out of wrong motive. The motives were good. 
Peter was just trying to protect Jesus from pain. But that didn't make his suggestion right. Often in life, our most difficult temptations come from those who are trying to protect us from discomfort. So they suggest something that is so contrary to what God has for us. God's will for your life may not always conform with popular opinion. You know, as a new Christian, I felt God was calling me to vocational ministry to preach His Word. There was a fire that was just burning within me, and I knew that this was God who was placing that burden. And I thought long and hard about what I want to do with the rest of my life. I was about 18 years old. And I felt a deep certainty welling up in me that God was calling me indeed to serve Him all my life in full-time ministry. But when I talked to some matured Christians that I knew at the time, almost every one of them discouraged me from doing that. They said, you're making an emotional decision. You're just too passionate. You need to slow down. Study hard, find a good career, settle down in life. Ministry is hard. There's no money in it. You have to live a simple life. Don't go down that route. We don't even recommend that for our own children. Now, these people didn't have bad intentions. They were trying to protect me from suffering and discomfort. Now, today, I'm thankful as I look back, that I didn't listen to popular opinions, but trusted in Jesus to lead my life. For I will not trade what I am doing now for anything else in this world. And I'm just sharing this example from my life. But Jesus also may have a plan for your life that doesn't conform with popular opinion. When you run into difficulties in your marriage, leaving the relationship seems like an easy way out. And there will be people around you who will give you that worldly counsel. That's the popular opinion that values your personal happiness over everything else. And even if you're facing the slightest challenge in a relationship, people today come to the conclusion we were not meant to be together. But I plead with you, don't take that easy way out and destroy your family. Now, from a Christian point of view, ending your marriage is not your first option, but it's the last resort. Now, granted, there are some marriages that get to the point uh, where it is beyond reconciliation for various reasons, and there may be a legitimate ground to end the marriage. But so many marriages can be salvaged if we learn to deny ourselves and crucify our egos. The problem is, 
You have to work hard at denying yourself. It doesn't come naturally to any one of us. Another principle of our world is to make money, lots of money. Achieve your dreams. Life is all about titles and accomplishments and accumulating stuff. Jesus challenges that principle here in our text. Look at verses 25 and 26. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, if the aim of life is to make lots of money, accumulate stuff, and live for yourself a selfish life, then you will find out when you stand before God on judgment day, what a bad decision that was. For you will lose so much in light of eternity. But this life is not all we have. This is just a prelude, an introduction. But if you honor Jesus in this life, and make him the center and the driving passion of your existence, and you use your time and your gifts to serve Jesus and partner in his mission to reach the lost, when you bless others, those who are considered least in the eyes of the world, and you encourage them and meet their needs, when you give generously of your resources to advance God's kingdom, then our text tells us that we will gain much in light of eternity. Now, Pastor John Piper talks about a plaque on the wall of his house when he was growing up as a little boy. And that, what he read every morning from that plaque, had a profound impact on his life. And the words go like this, Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Piper goes on to say, few things make me tremble more than the possibility of taking this one-time gift of life and wasting it. Church, don't waste your life on frivolous things. Live for Jesus wholeheartedly. For your life will slip away before you know it, right before your eyes. So let us leverage our lives and make it count for the Lord. And here's the deal. As you walk in this path of self-denial and follow Jesus wholeheartedly, you will realize this is the most fulfilling, most satisfying life ever. Some of you are feeling overwhelmed by the demands of discipleship. And you feel the weight of this is coming on you. Jesus also offers here words of encouragement. Look at verse 27. 
For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. The Bible clearly promises us rewards. That's one of the motivations why we shouldn't take a shortcut. Because the rewards that the Bible talks about are not all in this lifetime. We do receive some of the rewards now because of God's grace and generosity. But most of our rewards are held on the other side of eternity. And when you take a shortcut, you may receive a temporal reward, but they are perishable. However, Jesus promises an eternal reward that far outweighs everything else. It is so awesome that the Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, or the human mind even conceived of the things God has in store for those who love him. It is totally worth following Jesus in the path of discipleship. Let's not take any shortcuts. As we come to the end of this message, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is a meal Jesus gave to his followers to help us to visually remember his sacrifice and to appropriate its benefits. So I want to invite you to participate in this meal together as God's people if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So this is the time for you to keep your elements ready, the bread and the the wafer and the juice that you received. Just wanted to let you know there's two portions here. You just peel off the first portion to take the wafer out, and then there's the cup underneath that. Now, let's not minimize how tempting it was for Jesus to avoid the cross. The scorn, the shame, the humiliation, and the agony of being nailed. His body being torn apart and beaten to a pulp. His innocent blood shed And he did all that, embraced the cross, did not take a shortcut, did not bypass God's plan for his life, but entrusted himself fully, knowing that God will raise him from the dead. And it is through this act of self-sacrifice, we now have a place in God's family. So in preparation for the Lord's Supper as we partake of the elements, I want to ask you, are there any areas in your life you're taking a shortcut? Are you willing to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, even if it means self-denial and forfeiting your rights? Why don't we just close our eyes right now and examine our heart? Because participating in the Lord's Supper requires a clear conscience. And if you feel there's something that you need to confess, a failure on your part, I want you to know that the Lord is here with us. He's merciful, and He will forgive you. So why don't we just 
close our eyes and reflect and allow the truth of God's Word to sink deeper in our hearts. And after a moment of silence, I'll pray for us. bottom of our heart for being our role model the one whom we can fix our eyes on for you are the only one who ran this race with perseverance until the very end and you have finished victoriously we have no merit of our own we come to you acknowledging that strengthen us even now as we partake of these elements that our resolve to follow Jesus will grow that we will be wholehearted disciples of the Lord Jesus who know what it means to deny ourselves live countercultural lives and follow you in the path of discipleship so come and minister to us even now Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 24. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. I'm going to ask us to stand as we partake of these elements right now. What we are holding in our hands are symbols that represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. The body of Jesus was broken for you. Jesus did not take a shortcut. He bridged the gap for us so we can receive the benefits of what He has done for us as individuals. We today celebrate the fact that we are part of God's family. The body of Jesus was broken for you. Let's partake of this bread with gratitude. You know, as we realize the price Jesus paid for us, let us also acknowledge the cost of discipleship. The discipleship involves everything that we have, a wholehearted commitment. And let us resolve to follow him faithfully until the very end. Let's partake of this cup with gratitude. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray for a fresh empowerment of your spirit. 
that the words that we heard today will not produce guilt or condemnation, but it will accomplish your good purposes. It will stir us anew to walk with you faithfully. It will convict us to acknowledge our failures, but not be stuck there, but to get up, to press on, and carry on in this race that you have marked out for us, Jesus. May we run with perseverance. May we run with our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. And may we look forward to that moment when one day we will see you face to face and receive those words of affirmation. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So to that extent, we commit ourselves to you. We pray this in the powerful name Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.